Thank you, Dan. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's been a good uh, just sabbatical, I think, for us with just different guest speakers that we've had. And this is, uh, again, we kind of joke around the alpha. This is the last but not least uh, guest speaker that we'll have before our loving pastor comes back. Um, it's a, my privilege to introduce uh, Pastor Brother Arul Karunanadi, okay, uh, to us. I had to practice that a few times before I came up. I still might have messed it up. Um, but, uh, yeah, Pastor Rule is, he describes himself as a Hindu background believer um, with three cultures, having uh, been born in Australia, lived in South India, and then various parts of the U.S. And um, he's a graduate of the University of Central Florida with a degree in molecular biology, but uh, felt a different call. Instead of pursuing continuing studies in, in the med medical field, he just felt called to join staff with InterVarsity. And so for over 10 years now, he's been on staff as a campus minister uh, serving d various uh, campuses throughout the Central Florida area. And so uh, he lives here in Orlando with his wife, uh, Betsy, and as he describes himself, his lively two-year-old son. Um, let's, uh, just with a praise to God, let's welcome him, just giving thanks for him sharing God's word with us this morning. Thank you. Thank you so much. Man, it is... Um it is such a privilege for me to be here with you this morning. Uh, I feel so honored. Um, and uh, Eugene, you did such a good job remembering everything I told you to say about me. Thank you for doing that. Um, so yeah, I, I bring you greetings from InterVarsity. I know many of you know Danny. We just prayed for Danny this morning. And, and uh, I spoke to him this week, and he sends his greetings to you and, and Jane as well. Um, and uh, I, I have the privilege of working with them, of working on university campuses, and, and seeing God move in powerful ways among students and faculty. Um, one of the things I love about college students is they will not take things at face value. Um, so uh, when you tell them something, they usually have lots of questions or they're curious. They want to know, like, do you know what you're actually talking about? Um, so on campus, when, uh, when we work with students, in particular when we talk about, like, God's word with students, they won't take it at face value. You know, they'll have questions about it, whether they're skeptical or they're, they love God, or, or whether they're just curious, um, they'll want to, to dig deeper. And I think that's really good. I think that's a really good posture, actually, to have uh, when you come to God's Word, is not to just read it and just say, oh, I've heard this before, or I think I know what this means, and move on, but to really, like, go deep into it. And that's one of the things I love about InterVarsity, and I love about working with college students. Um, let me do this before we jump into God's word this morning. I'd love to just pray for us and pray for our hearts to be receptive to it. So would you pray with me? Lord, would you come? And Lord, I pray just as you talked about in your word that the, the ground of our hearts can be many different types. It can be rocky, it can be a path, it can be full of thorns, or it can be good soil. And I pray for good soil this morning, Lord, that your word would be planted in our hearts, that they'd be receptive to your word, and um, that it would produce uh, like a multiplicative effect that would grow exponentially out of us by what we hear this morning, Lord. So um, would you do that? Protect the preaching of your word and protect our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So um, 
Something I tell these college students that we work with, especially when we're reading scripture, is I say to them that God's word is sort of like hard candy. Um, You can't just like bite into hard candy, right? You'll like chip your tooth or strain your jaw. Um, Or you can't just like swallow hard candy whole, right? You'll die probably, you'll choke on it. Um, You gotta like let it sit and turn it over and sort of work on it and then over time to like get the full flavor of the candy. Aren't you glad you came to church today to learn about hard candy? So so I think God's word is the same way that we have to turn it over. We have to think about it. We have to feel it to then like live it out in our lives. Amen. Like we need to like, there needs to be time plus some effort with it to really receive what God wants to say to us. And so as we come to the text this morning, and we're going to be looking out, we're going to be um, uh, looking out of the book of Jonah. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, book of Jonah, it's right before the book of Micah, right after the book of Obadiah. Two books you've probably never read. Um, Or you have, and you're super spiritual, praise God. Um, But the book of Jonah, uh, we're going to be in chapter three of the book of Jonah. And I want to say off the bat that the story of Jonah, maybe you've even heard it in popular culture. Um, The story of Jonah is a really interesting story with a really radical message. And the character of Jonah, the prophet Jonah, is uncomfortable throughout, like, the entire story. Like, there's 1% of the story where the text says he's happy, but 99% of the time, He's really uncomfortable, and you're going to see that. And I say that to you because if as you're hearing this message preached this morning, you find yourself feeling uncomfortable, I want you to be encouraged. That's actually a good thing. You're probably hearing this story the way it was intended to be heard, the way the original readers heard it. When they would have heard this story, they would have been thinking about what is God teaching Jonah? That is what he wants to teach me. That's what he wants to teach us. Or maybe that's my way of saying, if you hear a hard word, don't kill the messenger for that hard word because it's the Holy Spirit. So um, we're gonna read the text, Jonah chapter three. Uh, I'm gonna read it out loud for us. Um, We're gonna talk about the whole whole book, but I wanna jump in right in the middle and, and read this portion for us. So Jonah chapter three, starting in verse one, this is what it says. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and he went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth, a sign of repentance. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Skip down to verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah... This seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, 
Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Oh, snap. So strap in, it's about to get real. We have three points that come out of this text, okay? Three points, and they come from looking at who God pursues in the story of Jonah. Who God pursues. Three things we learn by looking at who God pursues in the story of Jonah. Starting with, number one, God pursues Jonah. God pursues Jonah. So to back up a little bit and to set some context for what we just read, in chapter one, so the story of Jonah, the book of Jonah is just four chapters. It's really short. In chapter one, in the very first verse, God speaks to Jonah. And he says, go to the city of Nineveh and preach against it, for their wickedness has come up against me. And in the third verse, Jonah runs. It says he runs away from God, he flees from God and his call. And it says that he goes down to a city called Joppa, he pays money, he gets on a boat, and he bounces towards a city called Tarshish. Now, to give you some, like, geographical bearings, there's a slide here that shows you kind of where these places are. If you notice, Nineveh is, like, northeast, about 500 or so miles. And Tarshish is in the exact opposite direction, like quadruple the mileage, right? And so the contrast is striking. He, God tells him to go to Nineveh, which is east, and, and jo- Jonah's like, heck no, I'm going west. God calls him to travel over land. He decides, no, I'm traveling over water. And maybe to continue the contrast, God decides that if Jonah doesn't want to go to the great city of Nineveh, then God is going to send him into a great storm, which is exactly what happens. Jonah gets on this boat. He heads off on the Mediterranean Sea, and they run into this huge storm. And it's really bad. Like, there are these sailors on board this boat, and they are freaking out when they hit the storm. They're, like, throwing cargo overboard. They're, like, crying out to their gods. Like, they're really afraid of what's going on. Which tells you something about how bad the storm is, right? Like, these guys have probably made this trek, like, multiple times. They've probably hit bad weather before. But this time, they're praying to their gods when they hit this weather, right? It'd be like if you were on a plane. If you fly off and you know that the pilot gets on the intercom from time to time and he says, we're going to hit some turbulence, head back to your seats, fasten your seatbelts, you know, we're going to hit some turbulence. It would be a different story if the pilot got on the intercom and said, head back to your seats, fasten your seatbelts, and start praying right now. Right? You'd be like, we're all going to die if the pilot, the one in charge of the plane, is telling us to pray. Right? So the sailors are praying. They're freaking out. It's a really bad storm. What is our friend Jonah doing in the midst of this storm? He's gone below deck and fallen asleep. Seriously? Like, you got to be really asleep on a boat in this storm to still be asleep in the midst of this, right? Um, And it's so interesting to me because Jonah, when he hears God call him to go to Nineveh, he doesn't just say, no, I'm not going, and like stay in his room stay where he is, right? He feels the need to physically relocate himself to run from God and to run from his call. And then here on this boat, we see Jonah consciously escaping and running from God. Have you ever had some sort of um, discomfort or pain or anxiety or or, uh, trauma or suffering in your life that you just didn't want to face? So you're like, I just need to go to sleep. 
right? Some depression, some hardship in your life that you didn't want to face. You just wished you could escape your reality so you wanted to go to sleep. That's what's happening to Jonah. Not just physically is he running from God, but even consciously he's running from God. Oh, did Jonah run from God? And I think we can all identify with Jonah here. We can all identify with this type of running in our own lives. All, all what the Bible calls sin, all uh, self-centeredness, all selfishness is actually just an attempt to escape God. To escape reality. If God actually has designed the world and reality and the way that we're supposed to live, and if doing that is the best form of life, then all sin is an attempt to just escape truth, to escape reality, to escape God. And we can all identify with that type of running in our own life. But there's a captain on board this ship, and he doesn't want to, you know, he comes below deck, and he sees Jonah asleep, and he does what any of us would have probably done. What are you doing? Wake up. And it, he's, the text says something really interesting. It, it, the captain comes to Jonah and says to him, wake up, call on your God, maybe he'll notice us so that we won't perish. Now this captain and all the sailors on board are not, they're not believers in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're, they don't believe in the God that Jonah believes in. But this captain is telling Jonah, like, call on your God, maybe he'll help us. And Jonah does nothing. Like he ignores the captain. If you read the text, he doesn't do anything. He doesn't call on his God. Which makes you wonder, does, does Jonah care? Does he care at all whether they all die? Whether he dies? Whether all these people, they're on the same boat literally in this storm. Does he care? Does he care whether they're going to die? Whether he's going to die? But there's sailors on board this boat and they care. And so the text says that they do something called casting lots. Which is sort of like... Um, like an ancient spiritualized form of like flipping a coin or drawing straws to like figure out a decision, like to make a decision in a situation. And so these sailors, they cast lots and the lot falls on Jonah. Interesting. And so they ask him like, where are you from? What work do you do? Um, you know, uh, what people are you from? And Jonah tells them, he says, I am a Hebrew and I worship the God of heaven who made the dry land and the sea. And if I was a sailor on board this boat and I heard Jonah said that, I would have been like, and you tell us this now. Like, you know the God who runs the water and you are just conveniently been keeping that information to yourself. And he tells them, I've been running from God so they know like this is all his fault, right? Jonah's had this secret on board the boat and he fell asleep with it. And he woke up and the captain says, call on God. And he doesn't tell anybody the secret. And now, when he's sort of forced to reveal who he is and what he's doing here, he tells them. This is the story of selfishness in our life. This is what rebelling against God does. First, it starts with maybe um, shame. When we, when we fail God, maybe we feel some sort of like guilt or shame, and then that results in hiding, which results in secrecy, in keeping the truth of what we've done or who we've been from people and from God. I can identify this, identify with this. I feel like we can all identify with the journey 
Jonah has been on. The inevitable process of rebelling from God is shame, hiding, secrecy. And then it comes to this last part. Because here's where it gets really crazy. So he tells them, I've been running from God. They're like, oh, snap, we're all going to die. What have you done? This is crazy. And they ask him, you know, what should we do? And, and Jonah tells them, he says, pick me up and throw me into the sea, and it'll become calm for you because I know it's my fault. Which at first, that seems like really noble or sacrificial. Like maybe Jonah's, you know, he, he's like, he feels sorry for these people, and it's his fault, and they're suffering on his behalf. But think about what Jonah doesn't suggest. Jonah doesn't say, let me, let me turn to my God and, and, and repent. Let me turn back to him. Or how about all of us on board this boat turn to my God and pray to him and we won't perish. Like what better way not to go to Nineveh than to drown right here in the Mediterranean Sea, right? Like Jonah's still resisting God. He's still fleeing from God. And he's not only fleeing from God, but he's trying to make other people responsible for his death, right? He could have been like, it's my fault, sorry, and then jumped off the boat, right? But he's like, no, you pick me up and throw me into the sea, right? Like the the way, his self-centeredness, he doesn't care about the people on the boat, but the storm is getting worse and worse, And the sailors don't know what to do, so they pick Jonah up, and they throw him overboard. And as soon as his body hits the water, the text says that the sea grows calm. And Jonah starts to sink down into the water, and he thinks maybe now he's done it. I've escaped God. I can finally die in my shame and my secrecy. Well, he's not secret anymore. I can die in my shame in the ways that I've been running from God. But what what does God do now? He sends this gigantic fish to come and swallow Jonah, aka rescue Jonah. And inside the fish, we see Jonah do what he wouldn't do on the boat, which is cry out to God, cries out to God. And uh, essentially, like he tells God, I'll do what I said I was going to do. And God commands the fish. And after three days and three nights, it spits him out onto dry land and Jonah is rescued. What a humbling experience that might have been, must have been like, right? Like humans catch fish. This is the first time in history that a fish is catching a human, right? It's like the complete reversal. Um, what is so powerful to me about the story of Jonah, especially in this first chapter, is that no matter the extraordinary lengths that Jonah goes to to run from God, God is even more extraordinary in running after Jonah. He's even more extraordinary in running after Jonah, right? Think about it. He runs from God, physically relocates, gets on a boat, pays money to flee from God. He can't handle it, and God sends the weather after him right? And then Jonah can't deal with this, so he's going to escape reality and go to sleep. And God sends this captain who doesn't even know him to come down and tell Jonah, call on your God. Jonah would have known, like, oh, snap, God's talking to me. But he ignores it, doesn't want to tell, this, doesn't want to tell the truth. And then they cast lots, and somehow the lot falls on Jonah. And then he reveals it, but, but, but still, he's like, I can't do it. I, I'm, you know, I'm not going to turn back to God. And he gets thrown overboard. And God sends an organic life form to come and be his rescue raft. 
Here's the point, no matter the extraordinary lengths that we go to to run from God, God is even more extraordinary in running after us. Somebody say amen. amen. God is relentless in his pursuit of us. No matter the damaging attempts to escape reality, the frantic attempts to hide your shame. Listen, you got to get this. God will always outpace you, outmatch you, and outrun you with his mercy. You can never outrun God. And this, this story, the story of Jonah, is like this micro story of the entire story of Scripture. It's like a microcosm of the entire story of Scripture. Because many people... They, they think, they read Jonah, or maybe they hear about it in popular culture, and it's a story about, um, they think it's a story about a prophet who runs away from God. But it's really the opposite. It's about God running after a prophet. Because the way God runs after Jonah is way more crazy than the way Jonah runs from God. Right? And so many people think about the Christian story in this way. They think maybe... Maybe Christianity is, is actually about judging you. It's about judging you. It's about telling you that you failed and messed up and you better live right and like guilting you and, and, and pushing you into fear to then live right. Like maybe that's what Christianity is about, judging you. Or maybe they think Christianity is about instructing you. It's about instructing you. Here are the rules. Here's the way you live it. Here's the way you do it. Live up to that. But really... The story of the Christian faith is about surprising us with the mercy of God. It's about surprising you that even when you've failed and blown it in what seems like the most extraordinary way, God is way more extraordinary in coming after you with his mercy. Amen? Amen. Man, thank you. Yes, I, I'm, I talk to college students. They talk back to me. So if you come at me, I'm going to come with, you know, that's how we're going to show up today, okay? So you're with me. Are we here? Right? That's the first thing. God pursues Jonah. Here's the second thing. God pursues the nations. The second thing we see in our story is that God pursues the nations. Jonah is a really unique um, Old Testament book. Because it's the only um, account of a prophet who is told um, not to preach to Israel, not to preach to the Jewish people, but it, he's actually called to go and preach to another nation and, and to actually go to that nation and preach to them. No other prophet is uh, called to do that. And what's ironic about this story is that throughout this, the book of Jonah, it's the other nations that Jonah encounters that are more responsive to Jonah's God than Jonah, right? Jonah gets on the boat. He wants to die and fall asleep. It's the sailors who, even when they're throwing Jonah overboard, um, are crying out to Jonah's God. They're saying, please forgive us for taking this man's life. They turn to Jonah's God. When Jonah gets to Nineveh and preaches, just like that, like the entire city turns to God and Jonah's angry, right? Like every, all the other nations are responding to God. Jonah's the only one who's sort of disobeying, resistant, fleeing from God. Like the prophet of God, the one God is talking to is the one that's resisting God, right? In fact, Jonah's the only organic life form in the entire book that doesn't really listen to God. 
Like there's sailors who listen to God. There's an entire Gentile city that listens to God. There's a fish that listens to God. The weather listens to God. Later on, there's a worm and a plant that all listen to God. Jonah's the only one who doesn't really listen to God. So what's the point that, 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 that the text is making by showing us the contrary responses, the contrasting responses of Jonah and these other people? The point is this, is that God's affections, his pursuit has all, is, is, is not restricted to any one people, group, or nation, but has always been for the whole world. It's always been for the whole world. That no one culture or people group has a monopoly on God and the gospel. And that no one nation is the best expression of God's kingdom either. And that when a nation like, um, like Jonah had started to think about his people, when a nation starts to think that they're the best expression of God and his kingdom, like God is really quick to show that he shows no favoritism but accepts women and men from every nation who are willing to humble themselves and turn to him. There's this, uh, this really interesting chord that runs throughout the entire Bible, right? And it gets hit really hard in, in the story of Jonah. You can think of it like a soundtrack. There's a soundtrack to the Bible, and you hear it really loudly in the book of Jonah, right? We live in Orlando area, right? So when you go to Disney or Universal, you hear like movie soundtracks, right? As you're walking around the parks, you'll hear like Aladdin or Beauty and the Beast or Avengers or something like that. And it just takes you back to that movie, like when you hear that. Um, There's a soundtrack that plays to the Bible. And when you hear it, when you read it, it takes you back to the universal purposes of God. And that universal purpose is God's pursuit of the entire world, God's pursuit of the nations. As Brother Eugene shared about like, God pursues us. When you, in other religious systems and philosophies, it's man trying to pursue God. But in the story of the scriptures, the soundtrack, the song of the Bible is God pursuing the nations, right? It starts in Genesis when when God calls Abraham, who'd be the father of the Jewish nation, and he says, I'm going to bless you so that you would be a blessing to all nations. It's not just for you and your people, but you'd be a blessing to the entire world. And then you go and you read in the Psalms, and the psalmist says over and over and over again, God's salvation will extend to the ends of the earth, the ends of the earth. And then you keep reading and you get to Jonah and you see Jonah reacting in this very hardened way to God. But it's the other nations who are believing in God, who are turning to him. You're hearing that soundtrack again. Then you get to the New Testament and you see it over and over again in the things Jesus says. But even at his birth, right, when the wise men come. This is such a Christmassy passage, so we don't talk about this often, but when the wise men, the magi come, they are not Jews. They are people from other nations who are called by God following a star, like some like celestial object across the sky to come and worship the Messiah. Some of the first people to worship Jesus were people from other nations, right? You're hearing that soundtrack when you read that. And then you get to the end of the Bible, Revelation, and, and John is having this vision of the end of, the t- end of time, the end of the world. And, and, and in Revelation chapter 7, he says this. He says, I saw a great multitude of people standing before the throne and before the Lamb of God. And then he says this. He says, 
I saw that they had come from every, every nation, every tribe, every language, every people, every, every, every. Their distinctions mattered in John's observation of what he saw. John didn't just go, I saw a bunch of people. They were worshiping God, right? Every, there were representatives from every nation, every people, right? The, the scriptures, the Bible is not color blind. It's very color aware. It's very ethnicity aware. It's very language aware. Even at Acts, Acts chapter 2, when the disciples, right after Jesus has died and risen again, and the Holy Spirit comes on them, they start proclaiming God's uh, uh, goodness and worshiping him in other languages that they don't speak. It's as if God is affirming that he wants to hear his worship in other languages, in other tongues. You're hearing that missional soundtrack, that soundtrack of the Bible. From cover to cover, God has always wanted to build a multi-ethnic family. God has always wanted to build a multi-ethnic church. He's always wanted to do that. It's not like it was an idea he had later on. He was like, man, that's a good thing. We should probably do that. Always. He's always wanted to do that. The question for us is if this is the soundtrack of the Bible, if this is God's pursuit, is will we join him? Will we, will we dance to it? Right? Will we join God's pursuit of the nations right here, right now? It's so important and so good to like get a passport and go to another country or another nation and to be a part of God's work there. But that's not the only way that you join God's pursuit of the nations. Our city, our neighborhoods, our schools, our workplaces are ethnically, linguistically, culturally diverse. There's a diversity of people among us and we can join God's pursuit of the nations right here and right now. And I think when I, when I say this, it's not like a, uh, um, maybe necessarily a new thing for you to hear and maybe it's an important reminder for you to hear, but I wanna just take it one little step deeper when we, um, when we hear uh, the Great Commission quoted to us, right, it's the last thing Jesus says when he was talking to his disciples, must be really important. He says to them in Matthew chapter eight, to 28, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. And it's often quoted, you know, go and teach them everything I have commanded you, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and surely I'm with you always. But who are the disciples Jesus is asking us to make? It says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. When I read that text, if I'm not making diverse disciples, I'm not actually following that text. If all of the people I'm inviting to consider who Jesus is or I'm inviting to my house church or I'm inviting to, to, to a discipleship or I'm sharing my faith with are all like me and look like me or from the same background as me, I'm not actually following that text. If Jesus had told those, that homogeneous group of Jewish men on that hill and said, go make disciples of all nations and they were like, we're just gonna stick to our own people. 
none of us would be in this room today. Go and make disciples of all nations. That's not just applicable to them, that's applicable to us right now and right here. And, and, and there's, there's a lot that can be said here in terms of like application, next step, what do you do? Um, and, and I just wanna, I wanna slow down. I want us to sit in the hard candy of this. And, and, and I think there are two things I just wanna invite you to at this point, and that's to see and to pray. To see and to pray. When Jesus saw the crowds, it said he had compassion on them. And then he turned to his disciples and he said, pray, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. Maybe the only first step that we need to take is this week, pray for those people who are different than us, that we would engage cross-culturally in sharing his truth, relationship, invitation with those people. This week, that we would see and that we would pray to engage cross-culturally in God's mission. Because I can't read this and not do that. I can't read this and say, we should just be people who are reaching people who are like us and not engage in the diversity of God's kingdom. Amen. Amen. Number one, God pursues Jonah. Number two, God pursues the nations. And here's the last thing. Number three, God pursues your enemies. God pursues your enemies. In the first three chapters of the book, you're not really sure, like, why is Jonah so resistant? Like, why does he, like, so not want to go to Nineveh? You're not really, like, fully sure. When you get to chapter four, it kind of becomes abundantly clear. When Jonah gets to, um, and we read this in our text, when he gets to Nineveh, this is in chapter three, I think it's verse four, um, he, he comes to the city, right, and he's, like, obeyed God, supposedly, and he comes in, and this is his message, to the people of Nineveh. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's eight words in the English language, right? And the entire city turns from their wickedness. Like I probably said like a million words this morning and somebody's still falling asleep, but eight words. And the entire city, 120,000 people turn from their wickedness. And, and when, you, when you read those eight words, it's a really limited message. Like, he doesn't say anything about God. He doesn't say anything about turning from their wickedness. He's just like, 40 more days, and then we'll be overthrown. Peace. And, like, it's as if he's saying, like, this is what's going to happen to you. Or maybe this is what I hope happens to you. But still, all 120,000 people turn from their wickedness and God relents from destroying the city. And Jonah is angry. Like, this is greater than Billy Graham level, maybe, like, type of response to, like, somebody preaching. And he's angry. He's upset. He's so angry that he says, it would be better for me to die than to live. Think about that. He would rather die than live in a world where this nation, these people of this city are spared. The context is important here. The, uh, the city of Nineveh is the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire was a superpower at that time. And they were a very cruel, violent, oppressive nation. And they were a threat 
to the nation of Israel, particularly uh, the northern kingdom where Jonah lived. They were a threat to his people. And so you can kind of imagine what Jonah might have felt like being called to go and preach to this group of people who were the enemies of his people and were a threat, in fact, to his country. Um, Maybe some modern-day examples that capture, like, what's going on or what it might have felt like for Jonah is if if a Jewish Holocaust survivor was called to go and share God's mercy with an SS Nazi general. What would that have felt like? Or if a person of color in this country was called to go and share God's love with a white supremacist group, what, what would that feel like? Or you could even flip the roles. The SS Nazi general going to Holocaust survivor, the white supremacist group going to the person of color. Like, imagine what that would have felt like. But I, 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 we need to... Um, it, it, sometimes it's too easy to just to read this story and to get to this part and to say, like, man, Jonah was just some obvious, like, racial bigot. He had racial prejudice in his heart, like, and it was obvious. And to sort of, like, dismiss this story and its relevance to us. Because when you read the story, like, Jonah's prejudice isn't overt. It's, like, really subtle. It's still prejudice, but it's really subtle. It's not overt. Right? When, he, when he, he runs from God, he gets on the boat, he doesn't want to help these people. He doesn't tell them, like, I don't care whether you live or not because I just care about my people. He just kind of keeps it to himself. When he gets to Nineveh, he doesn't tell them, like, I hate you, but 40 more days and you're going to be destroyed. Turn to, like, he doesn't say any of that. He's just 40 more days and you'll be destroyed. And you kind of think about the message, and you're like, there's a subtlety in that of what he doesn't say in his silence. And it's only when you get to the end of the story, when he's talking to God, only God knows about the prejudice in his heart. The subtlety that was happening there of his racism, of his prejudice, of his bigotry. This was a prophet, a spiritual leader, a man that God was talking to. And there was deep prejudice in his heart and what was actually going on here is whether Jonah had all this pride about his own people and that's why he had this uh, sort of bigotry or he saw the Assyrians and he was like they're so horrible they're oppressive whatever it might be when Jonah saw or and thought about the people of Nineveh he saw them as the other he saw them as the other And when you start to see somebody as the other, you reduce them. You reduce the image of God in them. There's this reality that we all are created with, right? We're all created in the image of God, which means that we all have inherent value and dignity and worth and deserve respect. Not because you're a good person or a bad person or you're a woman or you're a man or because of your ethnicity or whether because you have a criminal background or you're wealthy or poor, whatever, it doesn't matter If you're created in God's image, you have inherent value. It's just given to you. You have it. And when you treat somebody as the other, you you attempt to reduce who they are, who they're made to be, the inherent value in a person. I remember the day after the September 11th attacks happened in our country. I was in high school at the time, and I remember the first um, class that I went to after those attacks happened, and I went in, into my first class, and I sat down at my desk, 
and it's a kind of a somber atmosphere in the class. And I remember my friend at the time turning around, looking at me, and sort of sarcastically saying, thank you for what you and your family did yesterday. He had reduced me, attempted to reduce me, and say that because of me and because of the background I come from, I was somehow responsible for what happened. And he had phrased it in this sarcastic joke, but it was still an attempt to reduce And there's a million and one ways that this plays out in our world in both big ways, medium ways, and small, subtle ways. But every single one is a sin, is an offense against God because it's an offense against the image that he had created us all in. Right? It starts like this. It's this really subtle slope that when you start to other somebody, maybe you just focus on what makes them different from you. What, what's the, the strangeness to them? And you just think about that, that, those aspects of them. And then that moves to starting to caricature and stereotype them because of their differences, because of what makes them strange and odd to you. And then that moves to maybe making fun of their strangeness and their stereotyping and, and the ways that you view them, which moves to then moving out of proximity from them and not wanting to live around them and not wanting to engage in relationship with them and choosing to do that. And then that moves to eventually not really caring about their privileges and their rights and what happens to them because they're not like you and your people. And the way that our human heart works is to be focused on ourselves and our people, which eventually moves to dehumanizing and devaluing a person. That is the subtle slope of racism and the othering of people. And we have a history of that in our country. Like, slavery and Jim Crow and segregation was all an attempt to dehumanize a person. Many times people think, like, the problem, like, the way you solve racism is educationally. Like, just, just, like, raise people's awareness. Like, people just need to know that when I cut and you cut, we all bleed red, so we're going to be okay. We're all the same. Right? Which... Like, maybe some awareness would help, but that's not going to solve the problem, right? And, 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 and some people say, like, racism is purely like a systemic and legal problem, and it definitely is, that the way the human heart works and the way the world works, that there are systems that are set up that marginalize whole groups of people, that whole groups of people are othered. And it is. It definitely is, but it's not only that. At its root... Racial bigotry, prejudice, and the bigger systems it creates are all a a, a symptom of a spiritual problem within each one of us to other people, right? Racism is both a personal problem, like you can actively um, take part in it, and it's a kind of a corporate communal problem. Like, depending on the community, the family, the system that you're in, you might actually be a part of the problem, too. Like, it's like this. When you go to the airport, there are those, like, horizontal escalators, right? Those people movers, right? A testament to our laziness. You stand on it and hold your luggage, and it'll take you to your gate. It's really great. I stand. I'm not making fun of anybody. It's great. I love doing that. Um, Right? You can walk on it, and you'll move faster, Right? You can race the person who's on the other side of you, and you're going to be like, I have this advantage. Um, or you can stand still on the horizontal escalator, and it'll still move you. Right? Racism is sort of like that. You can actively take part in it, and other people, intentionally, personally, 
add to the evil in the world in that way with your prejudice and your bigotry in subtle ways and big ways. Or you can stand still on it and just be like, I, I'm just going to be neutral on this. I don't take part in it. I, I love all people. But you don't actually look at the systems in the community around you and it's still going to move you towards evil, the evil of racism and bigotry. And the reality is, my friends, is that all sin is like this, actually. Right? Greed acts the same way. Right? Like, you can't be, like, neutral on greed. Right? The way that the world, like, operates, the way that, like, your Facebook news feed is going to tempt you, right, is it's going to tell you to covet and acquire and want more. You can't stand neutral on it. You have to actually turn, like, against its flow and do things to get yourself out of taking part in greed and the way it works in the world, right? You might do that by giving away your resources and wealth and trying to live simply, right? You have to act against greed, right? The same is true for racism. And, and I, I want to mention two, two last things on this is... Um, you know, sometimes there's one side of this where sometimes people will say things to me when we talk about um, racism and prejudice um, is they'll say, you know, when I look at like the world and today and particularly our country, I feel like things have gotten so much better. Like slavery's over. Like we had the civil rights movement. Um, there seems to be so much more acceptance of multiculturalism. Um, it feels like things have gotten a lot better. And maybe the reason we keep having problems is because people like you keep bringing up the past and keep talking about what divides us. And maybe you're actually the problem. And I hear that sentiment. And when it comes from an honest place, you know, I understand it. But I find it odd that we don't talk about other sins that way. Like we don't, there aren't people that are like, you know, we don't really need to talk about dishonesty anymore. Because people are just a lot more honest than they used to be. Like, back then, they were way worse. And you just keep causing problems by talking about dishonesty. If you just didn't talk about it, we'd be okay. Right? Or we're not like, you know, people are just a lot less, like, lustful today than there used to be. Like, right? Like, people don't objectify people the, the way that they used to back then. Like, you keep talking about it and making it a problem. Right? We don't talk about other sins that way. Time does not heal sin. Repentance before God is the only thing that heals sin. Time will never heal sin. Repentance before God is the only thing that will heal sin. Right, you wouldn't take that argument for your Wi-Fi connection. You don't get me, right? If, 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 you, go to your, if you go to a coffee shop and you try to get on the internet and it like kept bumping you off or it was moving really slow and you walked up to the barista and you're like, hey man, what's going on with the internet? And if he looked at you and he was like, Remember dial-up? <laughs> like, things have gotten so much better. Like, you can connect to the internet wirelessly. Why are you complaining? Just chill out, right? Time does not heal sin. Repentance before God is the only thing that heals sin. And I want to say this to my Asian American brothers and sisters, right? There's a, there's a narrative that runs through our community in particular, in the Asian American community, because of our relative prosperity in this country, and that's not true for all Asian American communities or people, but because of our relative prosperity in this country, of, of the, 
the, the beautiful story of how our uh, earlier generations immigrated here and worked really hard and were entrepreneurial and, and, and did their best to provide you know, for their children and focused on education and did that. And I love that about the narrative of our people in this country. But because of the prosperity that's afforded and brought in, in later generations, it leads to a real self-righteousness. It leads to a real self-righteousness in the Asian American community where we say we worked hard and we got to where we are so we don't have to think about other communities. We don't have to think about other people who because of other unjust systems in the world or in our city or in our country, they're struggling. They just need to work harder and do what we did and focus the way we did and got to where we did. Right? Jonah felt the same self-righteousness. He looked at the people of Nineveh and he said, God, you gave our people the law. We're working so hard and we're doing so good at it. They were really, they were, they were doing terribly. But, you know, we're at least trying. They don't know anything about you and look how terrible they are. How dare you want me to show compassion on those people and what's happening to them? There's a self-righteousness that can come up in the Asian American narrative and story that breeds this type of, of um, lack of compassion and mercy when we see racism and prejudice that doesn't affect our community. And it can happen to any ethnic community, actually. Time does not heal sin, and neither does self-righteousness. Repentance before God is the only thing that heals sin. So let, let's, let's wrap up right here. Well, what does God do to address the prejudice in Jonah's heart? He gives Jonah this object lesson. So Jonah preaches this very limited message. Everybody repents. And then Jonah leaves the city and he goes up on this hill and he builds a shelter for himself. And he sort of watches what's going to happen to the city. And um, God, the text says that God causes this like leafy plant to grow up over Jonah and to shade his head from the sun. And this is that 1% of the story where Jonah's like happy. He's like, I'm going to be okay. I have this plant. Thank you, Lord. I don't care. I mean, I'm a little mad, but it's okay. I got the plant, right? He's okay for this one moment, but it's very short-lived because at dawn the next day, God commands this worm and it comes and it chews away at the base of the plant and this plant dies and then God has the sun come up and it beats down on Jonah's head in this east scorching, like hot wind. Like just like in Florida, we have humidity. That's how I'm imagining it, but it's probably worse than that. But so this east hot wind comes and hits Jonah and he grows faint and he gets back to square one and he says, it would be better if I was dead than living. And then God comes to Jonah and says, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And Jonah says, yes, it is. I hate everyone. And then God essentially says to Jonah, you're so upset about this one plant that you had for maybe 24 hours. Should I not have concern for an entire city of 120,000 people that do not know their right hand from their left? And that's how the story ends. We never hear Jonah's response. God doesn't say anything else. And I think that's so intentional by the author because the truth is, is that the story of Jonah really isn't about Jonah and how he responds. 
It's about the reader. It's about how you and I are going to respond, right? It's biblical inception, right? You read the story of Jonah, and, and God, you get to the end of it, and God has actually just reached out from it and said, like, what about you? The story of Jonah is about addressing the proclivity in each one of our hearts to other people. Whether it's based on their gender or their ethnicity or their language or their uh, immigration status or their political stance, whatever it might be, the proclivity in all of our hearts to think less than, to caricature, to dehumanize people who are different from us. Especially if those people have wronged you in some way. Especially if there's been a person or a group that you felt wronged by personally. It is, that is a breeding ground for Satan to come and say, hate them. Mistreat them. Whether you do it in your head and in your heart, or you actually live it out and do it tangibly. And God is speaking to you and I through this text and his object lesson for us today is the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ. And we need the message of the cross today in a powerful and a fresh way. Like not just personally, but communally. Not just here in, in, on this Sunday morning, but like in your home, in your workplace in your school, where divisions exist. We need the message of the cross, which says when you look at it, you see this horrible criminal's death. The accountability that all of us deserve for the ways that we have ran from God, the cosmic consequences for our sin, we see it on display, but then we see the extraordinary lengths that God goes to to outrun us with his mercy and free us. We need the story of the cross. God has every right to other, to treat all of us as the other. One lyricist puts the story of the the cross this way. When have you ever heard the story of the hero who dies for the villain? When have you ever heard the story where the hero dies for the villain? That's the story of the cross. Let me walk back through it really quick. Consider that God um, uh, draws near to you even when you've sinned in an extraordinary way. Consider that God shows no favoritism, but accepts men and women from every nation, including yours, including mine. Consider that God could treat you as the other, but he decides not to. And in mercy and love moves towards you. How could we not also move towards others who are different from us and apply the message of the cross and his mercy to heal our divisions. Let me close with this. God, I think, is saying to each one of us, should I not have concern for your enemy? Should I not, or should you not have concern for people who are different from you? Should we not have concern for this great city? Let's pray. I just want us to go before the Lord in this moment. And I want you to think of, 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 one, of these, one of these truths that we've gone over from this passage. And I want you to just interact with God right now. If you need to repent for bigotry in your heart or prejudice that's even come up subtle, subtly, would you do that? 
If you need to turn to God and ask him to, to, to pour on you your, his compassion, if you need to confess sin and receive his grace, would you do that? If you need to pray for somebody in your life who needs to hear the message of the gospel, a disciple that you want to see made, would you do that? Would you pray for them? If it's a whole group in our city that you want them to worship God, to see more people from that community worship God, would you pray for that community? Right now, take just a couple moments and do that. would you remind us? Would you remind us afresh? Would your Holy Spirit come down and speak in a powerful way, Lord, about your amazing stamina that outruns us with mercy, that outruns our sin and our rebellion and our failures personally and even those of our family and our community? Lord, would you remind us of your stamina, your amazing grace, Lord, I, I have this sense this morning, Lord, even, and maybe it's personally, maybe it's for others here, Lord God, there's a way that even, uh, maybe we're not looking outside of ourselves at other communities, maybe other ethnic communities, and we're saying that there's prejudice and bigotry that I see between myself and them. But Lord, we're looking inward, and there's ways that we felt wrong and hurt by our own community, by people who are like us. And it's caused us to look inward at our own people and ourselves with shame and say, I don't want to be a part of my own community, of my own ethnic community because of the ways that they've harmed me. And Lord, I, I, I want to pray and ask for ways that I've seen that in my own heart, Lord, toward my, uh, towards other Indians in my community, the ways that I felt wronged and hurt by them, Lord. And I ask for your forgiveness, for your grace. Lord, would you help me love them and be a blessing to them? And in humility, Lord, I, I, to, to do that, God. So Lord, I pray your blessing over every person here, God. Lord, that we would respond to you in the way that you're calling us to.